Welcome to the STI podcast. In this edition, we'll be looking at chronic non-Albicans candida infection. David White and Janet Wilson discuss the best formulation for treatment. I'll be so glad when you publish this because I seem to get phone calls about this condition every two or three weeks, so it'll then be your turn to field all the phone calls about it. <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure. There has been an explosion in websites selling diagnostic kits for STIs, but how effective and how reliable are they? Charlotte Kent asked Charlotte Gaydus about her study of these sites. And uh, then there are some that are uh, unreliable and are only out to make money. We uh, have tried to uh, survey these sites. Most of these sites could not be contacted, and there was no uh, way to find out uh, information about the types of uh, tests that they were using. Nine years after the publication of the English National Strategy for Sexual Health and HIV-1, a set of standards for the management of STIs has been published in the UK. They set out minimum standards of care required, regardless of the provider's location or functionality. Christopher Fairley talks to Celia Skinner about her editorial, which discusses the document produced. And in your editorial, you make the important point that it's all very well having a document, but what's key to the success of a document are the issues related to implementation. So I wonder if you'd like to just comment a little on that. Now for the first item in our podcast. David White and Janet Wilson discuss chronic non albicans vaginal candidiasis. My name's Dr David White. I'm a consultant GU Medicine in, in Birmingham Hartman's Hospital. I have a long-standing interest in women with problem or recurrent thrush and have published a paper in, in 2001 describing three women uh, with a chronic infection with candida glabrata in their vagina that was successfully treated by a, a new recipe um, co-formulating amphotericin and flucytosine in KY jelly and using it intravaginally. I'd like to introduce my colleague Janet Wilson from Leeds, who is about to publish a paper on the prevalence and management of non-Albicans vaginal candidiasis. Janet? Yes, thank you, David. Um, I'm Dr. Janet Wilson, and I'm a consultant in genital urinary medicine at Leeds General Infirmary. And like David, I also have an interest in chronic vaginal problems, um, including all causes of vaginal discharge. I was sent the, the pre-print version of your paper, which I thought was very interesting because it validates with larger numbers the usefulness of the recipe that I came up with, with Stephen from, from uh, Stoke Manufacturing Pharmacy more than 10 years ago. I was very interested to read your overall report about the response in a larger number of women. I did want to ask you a few questions, however, uh, ones that weren't clear from the papers. One of the things about chronic candida glabrata is that it seems to occur more or less out of the blue in some women, despite the fact that candida glabrata is relatively common. Uh, it doesn't seem to affect many women. And, and one of the things that's been suggested in previous papers is that it's more likely to occur in diabetic women and possibly perimenopausal women. And I wondered whether that accorded with your experience. Certainly, the, there were women with candida glabrata who were diabetic and who were perimenopausal. But actually, uh, because the numbers that we had were, were small, where we actually did a statistical analysis on it to see if 
this was a greater proportion of women than in those with candida albicans. It wasn't significantly different. But we did find that correlation that some of them did have diabetes or other um, uh, medical conditions, and also some were older than the average patient with, with candida albicans. Oh, well, that's interesting. That's very consistent with the previous literature and I think most people's experience. I'll be so glad when you publish this because I seem to get phone calls about this condition every two or three weeks, so it'll then be your turn to field all the phone calls about it. <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure. <laughs> well, I mean, as you say, David, the medication that we use was thanks to the publication that you did originally, um, and it came about that we then had to use that because of, I think, not just a national shortage, but a world shortage of nystatin pessaries, which previously had been our first-line treatment for non-Albicans uh, candida species. Um, but in our case report that we published subsequent to your paper, we found it was effective in that one case and well-tolerated. And that is why we put this medication through our local drugs and therapeutic committee to ask for it to be our first-line treatment for non-Albicans uh, candida. And, of course, as part of such a, a process, it is important that you look at the efficacy of something. So we were very pleased when we found that it was 100% effective at clearing the non-Albican species. Um, well, that's very, very interesting, but all in your report, they're all candida glabrata, and the failures that I've had have been in other non-Albican species, and the ones that I've had most spectacular failures is with uh, candida cruzii. Right, we didn't, they, weren't, they weren't all candida glabrata, um, 15 of them were, three were other species, one was Saccharomyces cerevisiae, one, one, uh, and then two other types of candida. Um, but uh, the majority were candida glabrata. And did you have any candida cruzii? That's the one that I've had biggest problem with. Right. We'll wait for that one then. <laughs> and the other thing I wasn't quite clear about is what proportion of these women had been treated before you tried uh, flucytosine and amphotericin with either boric acid or with um, nystatin? Um, none of them had had treatment with... Uh, boric acid or nystatin because we this was subsequent to not being able to get the nystatin. I personally don't use boric acid because I have no experience of it. They'd all been treated with an azole because they were they all had symptoms suggested of a candida infection, and prior to waiting for the cultures, we treated them with an, an azole. But of course, they hadn't then responded to that azole treatment. In your references, you don't refer to a paper from 2003 by Jack Sobel et al. in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And he, that's previously the, the largest series of the use of flu cytosine. Uh, he used boric acid first line and then flu cytosine alone and found that flu cytosine worked in 27 of 30 women. You have had a, a higher cure rate from that. It was because I'd read about previous reports from him and also from from uh, Horowitz that I thought amphotericin should be added. Um, it's a, a leaflet, leaf out of the uh, HIV um, book because it's a single gene uh, resistance mutation for flu cytosine. So it's very gratifying to see that you've got a 100% cure rate because it, it suggests, although it's difficult to compare, that that's, that is crucial. 
Um, um, and uh, Jack Sobel didn't actually report whether he got resistance. I don't think. I haven't got the original paper here. Um, I mean, I agree with you. I, I mean, looking at the comparative um, cases that we might treat, which would have been oral and esophageal candida prior to having um, highly active antiretroviral therapy. And, of course, a number of those cases of candida infections became resistant to azole treatment. And the uh, recommended treatment then was never use flucytosine on its own, because if you do, it will work initially, but then you will get resistance. And so I totally agree. I think it makes a lot of sense to use the two antifungals in combination. I mean, the other problem with his recipe is he uses cold cream as a base, which we couldn't get in this country, because it seemed, um, so that's why we ended up with KY jelly. Um, yes, and I, I, I think it's difficult, isn't it, to know what to use as your base, because um, a lot of these women have got vulval and vaginal soreness and irritation, and you can actually add to that irritation by using a base that has some irritants in, it, in itself. I mean, in our experience, the formula made by Stoke Pharmaceuticals is very well tolerated in the vagina. Is that your experience also? That's my experience too. I mean, one of the things you report, and I think it's an important practice point, you describe that sometimes symptoms settle quite slowly afterwards. Even once you eradicate it, sometimes the patients still get vulval soreness, which settles with local steroids and emollients. Yes, but I think also we've got to bear in mind that in some women vulval irritation, uh, we attribute it to the microorganism that we find, i.e. a non-albicans species. But just as with candida albicans, that was never the original cause of them. There was some other etiology. And it obviously can be the same with the non-albicans species. The other observation that I have is that very often women who have this get very focused in on the area. And I think there's a psychological process where it takes them a while to believe that it's gone. And some of the ones I've seen have had it for 10 or 20 years. All right. Um, I think that's the main things that I wanted to ask you about that. Um, and um, I think, you know, clearly we, when, we, when I wrote the uh, national guidelines, um, uh, we didn't have this data, so I think we probably should change the guidelines in the next edition and, and put this as the first-line treatment. Is that what you, you believe? I think so, because as, as you uh, have said in your guidelines, obviously there are a number of alternatives. Um, there's never going to be a randomized controlled trial because no. the numbers of these cases are so small. So we'll never have really robust evidence to... Uh, support one treatment over another but certainly in the uh, case numbers that are emerging where uh, flucytosine and amphotericin vaginal treatment have been used it does seem to be effective and it's safe and well tolerated so I, I would agree I think it's there is more evidence for that than for any other treatments at the moment. Now Charlotte Kent talks to Charlotte Gadus about STI testing on the internet. This is Charlotte Kent, and I am the Chief of Health Services Research and Evaluation at the S Division of STD Prevention at the Centers for Disease Control, and I'm happy to be interviewing Dr. Guidos today. 
Good morning. This is Dr. Charlotte Gatos. I am a professor in infectious diseases in the Department of Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. We are going to talk about a paper that's going to be published entitled uh, Utilizing the Internet to Test for Sexually Transmitted Infections, Results of a Survey and Accuracy Testing. This paper by Dr. Guidos and her colleagues is a novel and important contribution to our field. Um, the Internet has been linked with increased risk of STI acquisition because people who meet their partners online are more likely to have an STI than those who don't. However, the Internet also offers a fabulous opportunity for education about preventing STIs, and seeking information about STIs on the Internet is common. The goals of this study were to survey Internet sites that offer STI testing about the services they have available. The authors also investigated the reliability of these services by ordering and evaluating the accuracy of the STI test kits. Of the 27 national and international Internet sites offering a range of STI self-testing kits, the authors were able to sur survey successfully only two. The majority did not respond, so we have no idea about how these sites assure the quality of their testing. The authors also ordered and paid for test kits from seven sites. Two of these sites never provided results. The two performing do-it-yourself kits yielded false negative results, so meaning that their, their test um, results were totally inaccurate. And then there were three sites that they mailed in specimens um, to, and these yielded correct results, including a U.S. public health site. So I think the results of these studies are pretty dismal for the overall quality of the STI testing over the Internet. And so, Dr. Guidos, I have five questions that I want to ask you about your findings. So how can we best warn consumers that most STI or STD tests available through the Internet are unreliable and that many Internet sites provide poor quality services, including not providing services paid for? Thank you, Charlotte. Uh, this is a difficult uh, question to answer. Uh, it will be difficult to warn uh, consumers because these tests are not regulated at this time uh, in any way. Um, there are good websites that provide uh, tests, and uh, then there are some that are uh, unreliable and are only out to make money. We uh, have tried to uh, survey these sites. Most of these sites could not be contacted and there was no uh, way to find out uh, information about the types of uh, tests that they were using. So I think uh, until we find some organization, be it the FDA or the CDC, somebody who is in a regulatory position to uh, uh, regulate these websites, it's going to be very difficult to warn uh, the uh, consumer. And uh, as most cases, the consumer is going to have to uh, make the decision themselves whether or not they, they trust this uh, test or this uh, website that is offering services. What do you think are the implications of your findings um, for other diagnostic and screening tests available over the Internet, so tests that aren't STD or STI? In the beginning, when people began to purchase through the Internet, I know there was a lot of uh, distrust. And as the years have gone on, this uh, trust has uh, increased. And so uh, perhaps uh, further use and disuse of adequate and, and adequate websites, will, it will become sorted out uh, uh, eventually so that we, uh, the good ones will stay and the bad ones will uh, fall away. 
something that's very concerning to laboratorians, and one of the reasons why we began the uh, survey was to find out the types of assays. Were they good ones that are recommended by the CDC, or were they substandard assays? One of the things that we noted was uh, that when we did order uh, some of these kits and we, in our laboratory, put uh, sample chlamydia and gonorrhea organisms that were we knew the titer of on the samples, they were uh, flat-out negatives. And they, they don't also mention whether or not they provide any kind of counseling uh, after the report of a positive test. So there is no way for the consumer to know what the quality of the test is. Well, thank you. I think my next question was going to be whether you thought that uh, tests sold over the Internet should be regulated, and I think that um, you've made a pretty strong argument that indeed they should be. Is there anything else that you would like to add about regulation? I think the $64 million question is who should regulate them because um, many of the sites are international, many are in the U.S., so until we find some sort of um, international body that's going to take responsibility for this, I think it's going to be very difficult for uh, them to be regulated. One of the things that we noticed was that it was impossible to contact the website to find out any of the questions that we wanted to ask them. Were they run by a person who was qualified to run them and whether or not they participated in the proficiency survey So um, I think that it's uh, an open-ended question, and maybe our readers will have some idea about uh, who should be the body that would regulate these Internet sites. So what do you suggest should be the roles of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control or the U.K. Health Protection Agency and other federal public health programs in the European Union with respect to diagnostic testing over the Internet? Well, I think that they should uh, assume a regulatory role, as I've mentioned uh, before, Uh, How this can be done uh, will be difficult, but I do believe each of these agencies do have uh, websites, and I think that they could have a list of sites that they have graded as reliable. This will be very difficult to do because these sites are popping up almost weekly. I think it would be very difficult for them to have any punitive effect on sites that they uh, don't grade as accurate. I think that's an an interesting thought. Another thing might be um, even just if they have, um, you know, these federal agencies have information about um, STIs, they could comment on um, that the consumer needed to be aware or, you know, put something if they have treatment guidelines or lab guidelines about this. Do you think that might be good information to include? Yes, I think that would be uh, good information. And, And so I think that in listing a acceptable or a reliable website that these agencies could say, this site participates in proficiency testing, this site charges reasonable prices, this site is headed by someone who uh, is qualified to perform these tests, this site uses tests which are recommended to be uh, used for STIs by the CDC or by the UK Health Protection Agency. It will uh, it will be difficult, but I think it should be able to uh, be done with uh, some investment of time and effort. Well, thank you. And um, I have my last question, and it's probably some things that you've you've reviewed already because it was what would be the ideal package of services 
that should be available to consumers purchasing STI testing over the Internet? Foremost, the package uh, should be flexible in that the, to allow the consumer to, uh, number one, do some sort of a risk assessment to see what their risk is of uh, STIs. Uh, I think that they should also allow the consumer to uh, choose the type of test that they want to be tested for based on what they can learn. Um, I think one important part of the package would be an educational section that describes the various STIs that they are testing for. They should also make it easy to get their results and be assured that they are uh, accurate and that they have the stamp of approval of somebody who is guarding the website. They, um, they should also offer um, an option for uh, counseling uh, services. I think an important thing is to get these individuals into care if they are using uh, these services. There are advantages uh, to being able to order a test over the Internet, such as privacy, confidentiality, um, not having your parents know, uh, for example. We know STIs are very common among uh, young adolescents who may not have the wherewithal to make it to a clinic. So um, I think if they're carefully tailored uh, to to the users to, to provide this uh, flexibility uh, for different types of people that are using the, uh, the Internet that maybe... Um, Someday we'll get to the point where we only have good sites uh, on the web. Well, thank you very much. I, I, again, I want to reiterate how important I think your findings are and how they really are a warning to consumers and also to the public health agencies that we need to be aware of, of you know, new technologies and how we can help you know, use them as important tools, but also how to protect um, you know, people, consumers, and, and, and the public's health um, who might be using them. So thanks so much. You're very welcome. And finally in the podcast, Christopher Fairley talks to Celia Skinner about the UK's minimum care standards for STI clinics. Christopher Fairley is my name. I'm the director of Melbourne Social Health Centre in Australia, and I'm talking to Celia Skinner. So, Celia, you've written a very nice editorial recently on um, these standards for sexual health medicine. And in your editorial, you make the important point that it's all very well having a document, but what's key to the success of a document are the issues related to implementation. So I wonder if you'd like to just comment a little on that. Yes, thanks, Kit. I'm, I'm Celia Skinner. I'm a consultant in HIV and sexual health medicine um, at the Royal London Hospital in, in London. And um, as a clinician working in this area, I really welcome this document, which sort of builds on um, sort of policy documents and, and changes that have been happening in sexual health in the UK over the last sort of 10, 10 or so years since the publication of the, the national strategy. That's fine for us as a level three a sexual health provider, the real challenge will be making sure that this is embedded in um, across the whole um, uh, provider landscape for sexual health. So that's where sexual health has been delivered in, in primary care, in family planning um, clinics, in, in, in third sector and independent provision where perhaps they don't have the infrastructure that a, that a level three provider has. And can I ask, Celia, is that, is that infrastructure that, that you have in London there uh, the same in the level three providers all over the UK? 
Yes, I think certainly it should be. Um, definition of a level three provider is that um, the service is run by consultants who have the, the relevant training in sexual health. It's certainly true in the bigger units where you've got a greater critical mass of, of clinicians, then it's much easier to pay more attention to the whole governance um, function rather than just concentrating on service delivery. So a level three service would be looking after SDIs um, from simple to to the very complex. And most level three providers in the UK are doing a quite significant part of HIV work in addition. Um, But it's very clear from our training programs and and how the services are commissioned that another responsibility is to make sure that the governance of our own service and across hopefully networks of care is consistent. So, you know, for example, wherever you have a chlamydia test performed, you can be confident that the clinician performing test, the test is trained to the same standard, that the test is validated, that the results will get back to you, that you'll receive the right treatment in the in a in a timely manner and, and that partner notification will be will be completed. So can I ask, are any of the key performance indicators within these standards linked to payments to the GUM clinics? No, not at, not at the moment. Um, there are examples in other aspects of healthcare in the UK where that is beginning to change now, but, it, but that hasn't happened in sexual health yet. And can I ask, just generally amongst the senior GUM physicians in the UK, are these sort of documents and specifically the targets that they've suggested generally accepted and thought to be a good idea or is there a sense of opposition to someone imposing these things on them? I think within the the sexual health genitourinary community I think there's widespread um, uh, pleasure almost that this this document has come out and and, and a lot of consensus. I think there are you know there will always be issues around the margins of the management of individual patients. I think the challenge is that the choice agenda in the UK for patients to allow them to, to have a choice of where they where they want to attend for sexual health, the development of family planning services to be truly integrated services, trying to use more of primary care and indeed the independent sector as well, that there is often pushback from those areas of, you know, we are experts in our own right. We don't want, you know, why should the you know the, the sexual health doctors tell us tell us how to do things and so I think our role as as sexual health leads is to is to really build all those relationships foster those relationships at, at a national level and indeed a, a, a local level picking up from your from your own editorial which was very positive about the utility of such a document outside of the UK setting you don't have anything like this in in Australia at the moment is that right no we we don't and I think they're tremendously important because if healthcare stays stationary, it essentially yeah. is moving backwards because everyone else is moving forwards. And change in any organisation is difficult and um, clinicians who are trained at individual levels to look after the patient sitting in front of them don't necessarily work well within an organisation, a team structure. So to have a document from a country like the UK that has such a good network of GUM clinics that are internationally respected say you don't need to examine asymptomatic people makes a huge difference to our ability in individual sexual health centres to implement change that will improve the efficiency and throughput of sexual health centres in Australia. So I, I think it's a terrific document for us to have and I've read every word of it. 
Yeah, and I think what we all need to draw on the experiences of other major disease groups, be it diabetes management or congestive heart failure or whatever, lessons from implementation can be taken from lots of other disease groups and, and certainly that's what we try to do in the UK. It's certainly a, a very valid point. There's lots of people yeah. who have gone before us and <laughs> gone down the same road that we can learn from as a result of that. Yeah. That's all for this STI podcast. All the articles discussed in this podcast are available on the STI website at sti.bmj.com. We'll be back in two months with the next instalment. Join us then.